Okay, if you would, join me in the Word of God in 1 Samuel 13.5. Are you ready for the Word? Did, that, did praying, you know, kind of help you get your spiritual feet under you and get, get you ready? 1 Samuel chapter 3, that's in the Old Testament. I'll be reading to you out of the New International Version this morning. I have a parallel Bible here with New International and King James next to each other. If I, if I lose bearings and read to you out of the King James from time to time, please uh, accept my apologies right off the start here. But I th- I'll try to stay in the New International Version. Chapter 3, verse 5, it says, The Philistines assembled to fight Israel. And with 3,000 chariots... 6,000 charioteers and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Bethavain. And when the Israelites saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. Well, we see here a uh, yellow stripe down the back of the Israelites about a, about a, a four-lane-wide highway. They're quaking with fear. The situation is out of control. Saul, their leader, is a relatively new king a brand new king, and he has a challenge to lead his nation as a godly man. He's received a stamp of approval from the Lord. He's received anointing from the uh, prophet and judge of Israel, Samuel, but now he's being tested by the realities of life, and his army is quaking with fear. It's a moment of fear. Maybe the day before, it didn't exist. If they do well, they'll overcome it. But it's something they have to deal with in this moment, the moment of fear. What would they do? I was uh, blessed this week, this past week, to uh, listen in on a live conversation with uh, the retired four-star general, Stanley McChrystal who uh, really revolutionized the way uh, the United States uh, military operates, at least under his command. Uh, He's been retired for some years now, and it was a uh, conversation about leadership. And he said something interesting about leadership, that the first thing and the foundational thing about being a leader is to first get control of yourself. Very interesting. Get control of yourself. He said if you lead from your gut and you lead without control of yourself, you will lead badly. You will make mistakes because you will operate on partial and faulty information. So he said, get a hold of yourself. Well, that's what the apostle, or that's what uh, King Saul had to do. He had to get control of himself because there was a mighty fear over 
coming all the troops of Israel. In John chapter 14, verse 1, Jesus says this, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. The Greek word that is translated troubled in Jesus' statement is the Greek word terasso, and it means to be shaken, to have inner turmoil, to be disturbed and unsettled. And this is a great description of the soldiers of Israel in 1 Samuel 13 when they hid in caves and in brush uh, thickets, the Bible says, behind rocks. Even they climbed into cisterns. They were escaping any way they could. Some of them just ran. Some hid, some ran. If you live yourself in a state where you are unsettled inside you, in your turmoil inside you, the answer is to believe in Jesus. The situation may appear to you to be out of control and therefore scary. But I want to tell you that Jesus is always in control. Jesus is in control And because he's in control, you can have peace in the midst of very disturbing, uh, a very disturbing situation. And in the moment when fear threatens, when fear comes upon you, believe in me, says Jesus, don't invent stuff. You don't have to go around inventing stuff. You don't have to intuit an answer to your fears and to the fearful situation that you're in. You don't have to invent your own Christ figure, your own salvation. You don't have to invent a saving force. You don't have to invent a savior. In fact, Jesus warns us that in the end days, many people will come and claim to be Christ's. They will claim to have answers. And fearful people will be very vulnerable to all these offers that abound in the end days. This Christ and that Christ. Jesus says, believe in me, not me. (laughs) Believe in him. Believe in Jesus. And Saul reached for a salvation. He he did this very thing. He kind of intuited spontaneously with an unsettled mind. By his intuition, he invented a a salvation, a saving plan. He did this very thing. Don't invent, believe in the one who came. Don't invent, don't create, don't recreate, don't intuit, don't spontaneously, you might say by the seat of your pants, trial and error, create a path for yourself. Believe in Jesus. Trust 
in Jesus. Let's read on. Verse 8. He, Saul, this is 1 Samuel 13, 8. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, Bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. I'm saying it quickly because I sense that Saul felt he was in a crisis, in an emergency. It was the moment of fear. And it was quick. Bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived. I think Samuel went to Living Word Church because he shows up at the very last minute. Midweek, last week, we had 12 turkeys for our turkey giveaway, for the table turkey giveaway. I happen to know that Brother Mike was panicking. (laughs) He was in his own moment of fear. But it wasn't time to reinvent the food giveaway. And lo and behold, within a couple days, Living Word Church had filled up our storage of turkeys with, on top of the 500 that the food pantry bought, another 278, if I'm not mistaken. 278. They came in in the last day or two before the food pantry. Samuel is of the tribe of Living Word. He comes on time, but at the last minute. But he comes on time. Verse 10, once again, just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you didn't come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favor, so I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. I'm imagining that Saul is saying all of this breathlessly, number one, because he was just involved in a great big uh, procedure to make these offerings. He probably came out to Samuel, dirty, disheveled, tired looking, perhaps perspiring. I'm not saying that it had to be Saul who, offered, who actually cut the throat of every animal that was offered, but clearly he was pushing things along at emergency pace. Again, once again, the end of verse 12 says, so I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. Verse 13, you've done a foolish thing. You have done a foolish thing. Samuel said, you have not kept the command of the Lord. Your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. Saul, this was a huge moment for you. And if you would have done things correctly, 
rather than intuiting a solution to the crisis, if you would have stuck with the instructions of the Lord, the Lord would have promoted your kingdom. Instead, you did foolishly by inventing your own path, by inventing your own way. Wow, are you guys wide-eyed and and listening? Thank you for that. Saul was dealing with a moment of fear. All right, imagine him coming out to uh, Samuel the prophet looking dirty, tired, frazzled. That would elicit sympathy from anybody. Oh, look at the poor guy. He's suffering. He's so agitated. He's working so hard. He's trying so hard. And he says there was intolerable pressure from the Philistines. There was the disappointment of how late you were, Samuel. I I was confident that good appearances of being in control would stop the flow of my soldiers away from me. And I was reaching for a good thing. Victory over the Philistines, the favor of the Lord, the togetherness of my troops. I'm trying to stop the flow of my troops away from me. They're scattering. They're running. They're hiding. It was an emergency. I had to think of something. Samuel says, foolish, foolish. Feeling compelled did not justify what Samuel or what Saul did. Brothers and sisters, we live in a culture that treats feeling compelled as though it is the stamp of approval in the hand of God. I felt compelled. Saul felt compelled to do something foolish. It was foolish because it was not in keeping with the commands of the Lord. In my notes, this message is titled Against Pragmatism 4. That's what Saul did. The pragmatic thing. Responding to the dangers and the fears of the moment. Thinking of something to do that would stop the flow of his soldiers away from him. Look, Jesus does not always operate according to pragmatics, which which stresses outcomes, which stresses results. If it works, it's good. If it works, it's true. If it doesn't work, it's a mistake. Jesus said this in Matthew 10, verse 34. Do not suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus is not operating according to effects. You say, 
Oh, there's now a wedge between a husband and a wife. A wedge between a child and a parent. A wedge between a brother and a sister. This is no good. Don't judge by effects. Judge by faithfulness to God. Be faithful to God and let the effects be what they are. The effects are what the effects are. There's no silver bullet to winning a soul. I had a student this week ask me in Bible class, brother, uh, what are we going to face when we're witnessing to people and how are we going to, you know, how are we going to deal with it and get them saved? I said, wow, if I, if I knew, I would tell you, but uh, we're not always. There's no silver bullet that's going to win every soul. That's going to convince everybody. That's going to end with a a good result. There are going to be many wonderful results in the Lord. Many good results coming about as uh, as a result of the gospel. But we're to stay faithful to the gospel, not faithful to the results. Being faithful to the results is pragmatism. Being faithful to the Lord is faith. The Apostle Paul, or I'm sorry, the King Saul, King Saul, that we've been reading about in 1 Samuel 13, he was doing something in the hopes of a certain result, keeping his army together. There are issues that we have to leave in the hands of Jesus. We must not take them into our own hands in order to keep the crowd. Even if the crowd is our, are the people of our own household. We don't want to turn worship into something that is judged first by how entertaining it is. And have people say, oh man, I like that. That's not what we're looking for, is somebody to say, I liked that. That's what they say at the end of a concert. We'd like to hear feedback, sure, after a worship service. The feedback we're looking for is, oh, I felt so close to the Lord. I got strengthened by God. Thank you, Lord, for your presence among us. We don't want to turn worship into entertainment in order to keep a crowd. That's pragmatism. It will manipulate and pollute the concept of worship. We also don't want to pollute and manipulate the concept of love by which we would begin to accept the sins that can actually damn people forever. We don't want to adjust our concept of love according to cultural sensibilities. We want our concept of love to be in keeping with God's word. Saul did not have authority to offer these sacrifices. That was out of place for a king. That was not his role. That was not his place. He was stepping out of bounds. He was was doing something he was not called to do. 
Likewise, we all have a place. We should stay in our place as God's children. We should not begin to morph the work of God in in order to manipulate effects. We shouldn't adopt political platforms as a church in the name of the kingdom of God simply because it has a powerful effect on the crowd, on the market that we're trying to serve. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. In John 18, 36, Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from thence. So it's very powerful to get people in a fighting mood. It's very powerful psychologically and emotionally to get people into a fighting mood. And that's exactly what King Saul was trying to do with his troops, to get them in a fight, to bring them together and get ready to fight the Philistines. I'm afraid that churches may adopt political platforms to draw together a crowd and to create a kind of enthusiasm that is not driven by the Spirit, but is driven by emotion and competition and the quest for power. It's the flesh. Parents may invent their own religion in their homes. We could do that right here at Living Word Church. Go to church on Sunday morning, but then when we go home, we, we invent our own brand of Christianity in our homes when our children are beset by their enemies and their fears, when, the, when people in our own home are quaking with fear because they uh, are having anxiety and and. Uh, social challenges and personality challenges and challenges even with sin and they're being taken down and made afraid by the devil. It's not the time in our own homes to remake Jesus, to remake Christ, to remake Christianity or the faith. Leaders should have control of themselves. Saul was guilty of doing it his way. We have to be careful of trying to do Jesus our way. Our Jesus. Our brand. Our denomination. We need to hold to the ways of Jesus like courageous warriors. Drawing together a crowd of happy, confident souls is a good thing and a good effect. I believe that our Lord will give that to us. But how it happens is very important to the Lord. So we'll see this morning that the Lord does indeed bring the warriors of Israel together to fight the Philistines in this scene, in this situation. But he doesn't do it Saul's way. He does it another way. God cares how we do things, not only that we do things. So I think it's great to see a great big happy crowd 
confident in the Lord, come together and fellowship and work together. Hallelujah. I feel like I'm describing our church here. It's great, but it's really important how we do it. Saul saw people scattering. He thought, I've just got to get it done. I don't care how I get it done. I've got to get it done. You may see your children scattering. You may see your family scattering. You may see your coworkers scattering from Jesus rather than coming to him. There are times when people will leave the church. The Lord cares how we do it. Saul saw people scattering like we see people in our nation and all over the West who profess the faith of Christ, but they're scattering from the church. There is a great de-churching going on, which I have mentioned, uh, you know, been mentioning for a couple months now. It's, it's a clear trend in all of the West. The de-churching of the churches is our moment of challenge. Like Saul had his moment of challenge. People are running, hiding in their own homes. They might be living in holes and caves and behind rocks for all the difference that it would make in our modern society. They're running. There's a great de-churching going on. So in the midst of this de-churching, will we stick with the ways of Christ? Will we remain in obedience to Christ? Or will we accept near misses as dealing with realistic challenges. What I mean by near misses is Saul, King Saul, he offered sacrifices. Well, what, did, what was Samuel going to do when he arrived? He was going to offer sacrifices. So we might say, look, look, what's the big deal? Sacrifices are being offered. They were going to be offered. They were offered. Why should we sweat how it was done? Well, I can tell you that Samuel was sweating how it was done. He said, Saul, you have done foolishly. Should we be concerned about near misses when it comes to statements about love? Love stretched out of shape to where we pat people on the back while they are living in sin that will condemn them to eternal perdition. And we do it in the name of love, but it's not love to just stand by while people go to eternal judgment and pat them on the back and say, oh, it's all in the name of love. It's a near miss, but we're not playing horseshoes. Close can be very dangerous. Close but a miss can be very dangerous. We can say, it's the challenges of our age. It's the difficulty of our age. People are running away from the church. We've got pragmatic concerns that we've got to deal with. We've got to to flex. It's a new age. We've got to... We've got to embrace those who uh, are involved in premarital sex, ungodly sex practices. We've got to, we've got to live with those who are, who are filled with hate and violence. It's, it's in the political realm. It, we've got to live with these things. It's the 21st century. 
the Lord will ask us to be men and women of faith, not pragmatics. The pioneering of America, historically speaking, the pioneering of America created a great flourish of Christian denominations in the name of Christian market and Christian freedom. There were already in Europe, when the United States was first being, when America was first being settled and evolving into a nation, the United States of America, there already were Christian denominations in Europe. There already were a handful. You know, uh, Martin Luther created a sort of Pandora's box. I, I'm, I'm glad that he ha- uh, protested uh, Roman Catholicism and gave us Protestantism, Protestantism, a protest against the practices of the unscriptural practices of the Roman Catholic Church. On the other hand, when Martin Luther did that, started a new church, the Lutheran Church, it was sort of like, okay, well, what if, what if you don't like what's, you're in a, the Lutheran church and you don't like what's going on in the Lutheran church? Then you make another one. And then what if you don't like what's going on in that church? Then you make another denomination and another denomination. This was going on in Europe, particularly in England, before and during the early pioneering years of America and the formation of the United States. However... When the United States was born in the name of freedom and all men being created equal and liberty to, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness being the foundational principles of the new nation, I can tell you in terms of the Christian market, denominationalism exploded in America with our free market. Scholars estimate today in the world, not just in America, but in the world, there are 50,000 chartered Christian denominations. Living Word Church is not a member of one of them and is not a chartered denomination. I'm sure we must have another pastor in our congregation who's going to go and pioneer a church someplace. Don't you believe that? Let's believe God for that. A healthy church will produce that. They will not go and produce the second of the living word denomination. I I wouldn't be happy with that. Now, we've taken this to such an extreme that the churches are literally de-churching. People are going to their living rooms and saying, I'm spiritual, but I don't go to a church. What are they, their own denomination now? So we've got as many denominations in America now, almost as many, Christ- as, many as we have Christians. I'll tell you, somebody's salvation is in doubt with me if they don't go to a church. Because if you read the New Testament, it is clearly, obviously, and repeatedly, it is important for Christians to be members of a church. Galatians 1.8 says this. Let's turn, keep your hand here in 1 Samuel 13. Let's turn there because it's, it's so strong. The statement in 1 Samuel chapter 1 is so strong. I want to make sure that you see it with your own eyes. So Galatians 1.8 says, But even if we, 
This is the Apostle Paul talking. Even if we, we includes I, right? Or an angel from heaven. Think Joseph Smith and an angel appears to him on Hill Cumorah over in Palmyra, New York. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be under God's curse. Verse 9. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than that what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Strong language. Notice the Apostle Paul even includes himself because he realizes that while he has dedicated his life to preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, he, like all men, can change. He can deteriorate. His spirit can become corrupted and he could head off in a wrong direction. And so he says, if I do that, if I head off in the wrong direction, don't listen to me and tell me Paul, even though you preached good to us before, you're not preaching good to us now. Let you be, may you be accursed. Wow. Brothers and sisters, God will not forsake us. We can remain faithful to Jesus and leave the adding and the subtracting of the fearful people to him. Remain faithful to Jesus. Remain faithful to the gospel. Can I hear an amen? Are you determined to remain faithful to the gospel? And you know what? We will see people come together. If we are faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we will not see a de-churching right here. I'm telling you what the Lord has put on my heart. I'm telling you this in a manner of speaking prophetically. In the name of Jesus Christ, if you are faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ, this church, I'm not talking about another church. In the, in the name of Jesus Christ, I speak to you that we will not experience a de-churching. We will respi- experience here a re-churching, a growth in the church. People coming together, having their fears overcome by the peace of God. In the moment of fear and panic, God will have his way in our midst. And I will show you in the word of God this morning. We will see people come together. We will see Jesus Christ managing the fears of the moment rather than panicking in order to manage the realities of a fearful time. No, just stay faithful to Jesus. Just preach the gospel of Jesus. Just help people to believe. Hallelujah. Saul said he was influenced, practically forced, by the time constraints that he was dealing with. Samuel, you didn't show up. You didn't show up when you said you were going to show up. Then he shows up when he said he was going to show up. On the seventh day, 
a little late on the seventh day. The problem had a very now feeling to it for Saul. The fear was now. Saul did a religious thing with a pragmatic motivation. I'm going to do what works. The situation is urgent. Samuel's response was, ignore the pragmatics, Saul, and appeal to the nature of worship. These are offerings to God that we're giving here. Our purpose is not to please the crowd. Our purpose is, yes, learn of Christ and obey. Don't worry, the crowd will be pleased. Saul was moved by what we might call practical fear. A moment of fear, a situation, a quaking, a scattering. We are not to make our decisions based on fear. As practical as those decisions may feel, Saul felt compelled. That's what he said. I felt compelled. We're never told why Samuel was late. Perhaps he couldn't find the keys to his chariot. Maybe he slept late that morning. Maybe he had a stomach bug. Maybe he was delaying to the last possible moment in order to test Israel's king. I wouldn't put it beyond him. Well, if, it was, if his lateness was intentional or unintentional, it did test Saul. Saul, will you stay in your place? Will you control yourself? Once again, 1 Samuel 13, verse 12, says, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God gave you. If you had, you would have established your ki- he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. Now, who would have established Saul's kingdom? Saul? No, the Lord. Have faith in God. He will establish you. He will establish your home. He'll establish your testimony. He'll establish your work in Christ. He'll establish you. Just go his way. Don't intuit an answer. Don't say, I feel compelled. I couldn't stand it anymore. The feelings were overwhelming. Saul acted in the name of the Lord, but Samuel called it foolish. Saul said he was seeking the favor of the Lord, but Samuel pointed out that he was disobedient. In 1 Samuel 10, verse 8, we see what Samuel is referring to. I'll read it to you. 1 Samuel 10, 8 are the instructions of Samuel to Saul. He says, go down ahead of me to Gilgal. I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. But you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you're to do. Saul jumped the gun. Before the seventh day was over, he, he offered burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Saul hurried only a little bit, but this was an ample evidence that he was not fit to be their king. We also can fear. We're going to lose a whole class of people 
If we stand for holiness. The Lord says, don't be foolish. Don't be foolish. Continue to stand for holiness. We can calculate, hmm, which way will we gain more and lose less? If we stand for liberal Christianity, we're going to lose the old hardliners who are so rigid, they'll crack. Or if we stand with the rigid old ways, we're going to lose the more liberal generations, which will give us the greater net increase. Both solutions are wrong, brothers and sisters. We're not to think of market gains. We're to think of representing our Lord faithfully. Saul lost a great opportunity. In verse 13, Samuel says, if you had. If. But he distrusted. God was going to choose Saul as the first king of Israel, which he did. Uh, God pointed him out. God told Samuel to anoint him. God's spirit came upon Saul and he prophesied with other spiritual men. The Bible says his heart was changed by the spirit of God. God was really giving Saul all the spiritual equipment to succeed. But now Saul is presuming to make war by himself without the support of God's prophet. Saul is unfit for king. He prefers to be a prudent general rather than to be an obedient and faith-filled servant of God. He tried to be the king of Israel without proper regard for the almighty king of heaven. Now, I promised to show you how God would, in his own way, Bring the soldiers of Israel together. So let's jump to 1 Samuel chapter 14 and verse 7. It seems that while all of this is happening, Saul's son Jonathan goes out to reconnoiter the position of the Philistine army. And in chapter 14, Verse, we could start at verse 6. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, come, let us go over to the outposts of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. A critical statement, right? Because the army of Israel is scattering and they're hiding and they're running and Saul is panicking to try and do something to keep them together. And here is Jonathan who has, in a sense, scattered from the ranks. He is not together with the rest of the ranks of Israel. He too might be called absent, only he's absent with faith. And he's looking at the Philistine army and he's saying, God doesn't need a lot of people to have a victory. God could save by just a few. How about if you and I, armor bearer, are the few that God uses? I'm not promising that it'll happen this way, but maybe God will give us the victory. It's, it's an awesome example of maturity. So in verse 
6, he says, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or few. And I love this. This just jumps off the page at me. The armor bearer says, do all that you have in mind. His armor bearer said, go ahead. I'm with you heart and soul. Wow. What two saints together can do for Jesus Christ. Jonathan and his faithful armor bearer, two men, they go up to the Philistine garrison and they courageously confront them, just the two of them. And before you know it, the Philistines are in disarray and they're confused and afraid themselves and destroying each other and running. As a result, the soldiers of Israel gain faith from what they see happening among the the Philistines. Israel's soldiers regather, rechurch, go forward together in, in, in the name of the Lord and win a great victory over the Philistines. Notice, it was not done Saul's way. It's what Saul wanted. It's the effect that Saul wanted. But he was doing it the wrong way, thinking pragmatically rather than as a man of faith. His son, on the other hand, who should be the follower, the the, uh, natural follower, turns out to be the natural leader. That's a really cool thing when the younger are called and qualified and moved and empowered by faith and can be the leaders of the older. I love it! And the armor bearer, not looking for glory, not looking to be the the guy in the spotlight, saying to Jonathan the most useful thing he can, I'm with you heart and soul. I'm with you, Jonathan. Whatever you want to do, do it, man. I'm with you. That helps. That really helps. I can tell you so many have been so helpful and so encouraging to me in the new position, still relatively new, a couple years, two and a half years, something like that. Now as the lead pastor at Living Word Church, I've, I've had so many armor bearers say, I'm with you, Brother Brian. Praise God. Saul's own son inspires an audacious victory, partly because he disobeyed his father's command, no eating. I mean, this seems a a little bit, I'm stretching us plot-wise, but in all of this, Saul says, we're going after the Philistines and nobody is to eat one morsel. If my own son eats, He's going, he's going to be uh, uh, damned. Well, one of the reasons why Jonathan was able to spark this tremendous victory for the nation of Israel was because he disobeyed his father's command and he ate. He ate some honey that he found in the field. And the honey revived him And it enabled him to have more strength and to win a greater victory. 
And this example of Jonathan and the armor bearer is our honey this morning, brothers and sisters. This is our honey showing us that if we do it God's way, by faith, and stick with the gospel, there will be a rechurching, not a dechurching, a gathering together of the victorious, and the enemies of God will be set to fly. Addictions, sins, unholiness, it'll be put on the run. Loneliness, anxiety, fear will be put on the run by the people of God as they do it God's way. Just do it God's way. Saul said, nobody's going to eat. Nobody eat. Before Samuel came, he was a man of pragmatics. Samuel told him, you've done foolishly, and so now he says, all right, I'll be a man of principle now. Nobody eats, and anybody who violates my judgment is going to be taken down, even if it's my own son. Eventually, he figures out that his son has eaten. Eventually, uh, many of his soldiers eat meat without blood, with blood in it, which is not, not right. But it, it's actually Saul's overcommitment to his personal principles with the loss of empathy. No empathy, no compassion, no sympathy, no mercy. No heart for his men. No care, no concern. You see, we're going to have to go forward with care, with concern, with empathy, with understanding, with patience, not with legalism, not just by being hardheads, but to go forward with some understanding, making tough calls sometimes, But take the sweetness into you this morning, brothers and sisters. Take the sweetness of the word of God into you. What Jonathan and his armor bearer were able to accomplish in the Lord by doing it the Lord's way, by doing it by faith and waiting on God. Jonathan, when they were looking up, he said, if if they say this, we're not going to go up. If they say that, we're going to go up and perhaps God is giving them into our hands. Notice he's waiting for God to have his way in God's way. Hallelujah. What two faith-filled friends can do. Saul took his dedication to principle too far. He was absurd about it. He was ridiculous about it. Principle without empathy. I'm in charge and all must obey me. Work without food. He swings to extremes. First, he's the pragmatist, doing whatever seems the realistic thing to do. And then he's the man of principle with no regard for human weakness or needs. It's like the swing that Jesus experienced in his 40-day temptation in the wilderness. The devil says to eat the stones. Turn the stones into bread. Jesus said, no, I'm not doing that. Then the devil says, oh, okay, Mr. Mr. Man of Faith. Okay, if you're such a man of faith and a man of principle, leap from the temple and let the angels catch you. Jesus said, no, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Jesus refused both because both were very insistent on self. My hunger. And then my spirituality. 
King Saul was afraid of failure. And his army was quaking with fear. They feared annihilation and servitude. What is success for you? What is success for a Christian? Are you a Christian? Are we each going to formulate our own definitions of success? I'll tell you, if we all formulate our own definitions of success, we will scatter. We will each pursue our own success. But I would ask, if we do that, where is that coming from? On what is it resting? What is the rock underneath our definition of success? We know what the world is defining success as. You know, it has a lot to do with money. It has a lot to do with materialism. But there's some other things that aren't just materialism, like, you know, family. Fa- family's, got, family's the thing for me. Everything for family. If I just have success in my family, then I'm successful in life. Or success in politics, then I'm su- success in life. Success in my trade, then I'm a success in life. But shouldn't there be a rock-bottom definition of success that Christians share by faith that is not materialistic? It's not all about family either. Higher, better, or to be more consistent, I should say deeper, more bedrock than family. Jesus said, I didn't didn't come to create peace in families. That's not my mission. It's good. I like it. I'll do it. I like it when I can have it. It's not my bedrock mission, though. My bedrock mission is to save every soul I can. That's what's at the bedrock. Would you be open to your creator deciding for you what is success? Rather than do it, just intuit it. We live in a country where everyone is intuiting what is success for them. They don't even know why. How about if your creator would tip you off what is success in life? What is really success? What is really hitting it out of the park? Isn't it growing in Jesus? Growing in Jesus. There's room in that. Definition of success for differences between us. As long as we're headed in the right direction, growing, increasing, walking in the Spirit, moved by the love of God, bringing increase to the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of man. Any goal setting. Any measuring of success without Jesus at its center is empty and wasteful and distracting. That's the truth of it. Are you, this morning, in your life, at this time of your life, even if it's a moment of fear for you and challenge and crisis, are you on mission? Are you on task? Are you on point? Something to seek the Lord about. And I pray in the name of Jesus that this word will resonate in your heart and get you to think about what is success in life for you. A Christian, a man or a woman of faith. Are you going to define it for yourself? 
then you're defining your own Jesus, defining your own religion and making your own sacrifice. You become like Saul. And the prophet will say to you, you've done foolishly. Be like Jonathan, who went forward by faith, even if he had to do it alone. And it turned out to have a widespread effect on all of God's people. Hallelujah. Oh, Father, in the name of Jesus, we ask that this word will resonate in our hearts and stick and bring forth good fruit in you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Don't forget to let us know if you'd like to be water baptized. Praise the Lord. And have a wonderful day. Praise God. Hope to see you later.